Hi, this is Tanya Domi. Welcome to The Thought Project, recorded at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, fostering groundbreaking research and scholarship in the arts, social sciences, and sciences. In this space, we talk with faculty and doctoral students about the big thinking and big ideas generating cutting-edge research, informing New Yorkers and the world. STEM-related job creation grew three times the rate of other jobs during the first decade of the 21st century, and it's estimated that nearly 2.5 million STEM positions are currently unfilled. What's more, New York State has the third largest technology sector in the country, and employment in New York City's science and technology sector increased by 57% between 2010 and 2016. Exploiting the inherent opportunities that come with the growth of STEM industries is a major goal of the city's mayor and the governor, and the Graduate Center's role in preparing the next generation of scientists and advancing the discovery that fuel the industry is increasingly important. Over the past decade, the Graduate Center has taken several strategic steps to expand its footprint in STEM education and innovation locally and on the worldwide stage. Here today to speak with us about the present and future of STEM education and research at the Graduate Center is Josh Brumberg, Dean of the Sciences. Welcome to the Thought Project, Dean Brumberg. Oh, my pleasure to be here. So, in addition to having an active lab yourself, you are the Dean of the Sciences at the Graduate Center. Can you talk a bit about expanding the role of the science programs as described in the GC strategic plan that was issued in 2017? and and the expansion of the programs and how that relates to the overall institution's uh, mission. Um, the sciences for many years were almost an afterthought at the Graduate Center, which was really known for its humanities, social sciences, and the arts. And one of the tasks that uh, now outgoing President Chase Robinson asked me to do is to try to raise the vis visibility of the sciences at the Graduate Center. And we've done that through a, a variety of ways. But one of the challenges has always been that the science, the really interesting science is done at the laboratories throughout the CUNYverse and how do we integrate those scientists that are part of our doctoral programs into the community of the Graduate Center. And so we've done that through having targeted discussions, workshops, conferences that bring together scientists throughout CUNY to raise the visibility within the building. But a transformation happened two years ago when the CUNY decided to move the Advanced Science Research Center from the central office to under the Graduate Center's umbrella. So for the first time since the inception of the Graduate Center in 1961, we now had the ability to hire faculty to do bench work in a state-of-the-art 200,000-square-foot facility. And so over the last two years, we've built our central-line faculty not only 
in the experimental sciences, which is one half of uh, the scientific equation, we've also been able to hire two theoreticians, one a mathematician, one a biophysicist here at the Graduate Center. And what we're hoping to now do is to use this as a catalyst to increase the visibility of science at the Graduate Center, increase the visibility of science at CUNY as a whole, and also through the ASRC become a, a resource for CUNY scientists system-wide, just like the Graduate Center is considered a resource for the social science and humanities faculties. So not only has that been accomplished, but in addition, master's programs have been added in in the last few years that have science-based focus. And for example, the cognitive neuroscience master's program, data analysis and visualization, and it's also expanded to include data science. These are some of the hottest topics in popular culture and actually operating in the workplace today in America. Yeah, so the the Graduate Center has has been known for years for its doctoral degrees. Even I didn't know that we've been giving, awarding master's degrees since the early 1980s. But when I came as the Dean of Science three years ago, we had no MS degrees, Masters of Science. And as you noted, we now have four data science, data analytics, cognitive neuroscience, and uh, quantitative methods in the social sciences. And these uh, serve several purposes. One, it allows us to diversify our student body even further, which is consistent with one of the missions of the Graduate Center. Second, it it provides uh, a a useful credential for the marketplace, uh, tools for analytics, handling data, visualizing data is important not only in science, but it's also important in marketing, in the financial industry, in the communications industry, and we're providing the students with the training which they can go on and work in these industries. And we have a few more master's programs in the works. And of course, one other thing we're trying to do is to use this, the cognitive neuroscience be a good example, as a stepping stone to PhD programs. Many undergraduate students might not have the research experience necessary to get into a top flight doctoral program. And these master programs expand our portfolio and allow us to interface with another great population of students. So the strategic plan also said that the GC would work to remove barriers among the sciences and between sciences in the humanities, social science, and the arts. How have you pursued this effort as the dean of the sciences? This is pretty interesting, actually. Right. So uh, several examples actually come to mind. Uh, One uh, just concluded uh, this morning that we're recording the podcast is that we hosted a -a two-and-a-half-day meeting with a a group of academics from Sao Paulo, Brazil, uh, sponsored by their federal state um, granting agency called FAPESP is a Portuguese acronym. And what we did is we brought together two Brazilian scholars and two scholars from the Graduate Center across a wide range of fields. So physics, neuroscience, uh, structural biology, but we also include the humanities, social inequality. We, we taught, we also did media. We had a, a, a big round table about fake news, about U.S.-Brazilian interactions, about the impact of environment on gentrification of neighborhoods and how that in turn is affecting resiliency. So try to creating these interdisciplinary conferences in one, is one way in which we try to engage sort of both halves uh, of the institution. The other one is, you know, 
know, and and it, it almost sounds trite, is actually happening tomorrow night uh, from the, the the day after we're, we're recording this podcast, where I have Lev Manovic, who's a professor of computer science, but really uh, well versed in cultural analytics and aesthetics, and he's leading a roundtable discussion. Uh, about how artificial intelligence impacts everyday life. And Lev is one of the the forefronts of using digital technology to understand the arts. And he was one of the, to go back to your previous questions, one of the founders of the, the, digital, the digital visualization analytics master's program. So it all kind of works together. And we've been creating actually interactions with uh, the Center for Humanities here, uh, Keith Wilson and I, we helped put on a public event uh, about a month ago about the 100th anniversary of the Spanish influenza. So we had an author who wrote a book about it, and then we had a scientist who modeled the impact of the influenza, and this was integrated into a larger cultural events in New York City called Germ City, where there was an exhibit at the Museum of the City, New York, at the Tenement Museum, and we actually hosted a conference on virology. So try to pre- bring together uh, the cultural aspects along with the scientific aspects. And to, to final a point is, uh, with the Center of Humanities, you know, they've created something here at the Graduate Center called the Object Library, yes. where you're bringing in different objects. And so I had our nanoscientists up at the Advanced Science Research Center manufacture some little pyramids. Oh, wow. That's interesting. And so yeah. there's, but, but if you go up there and look at it in the Object li- Library, it looks like a uh, an empty box. Sure. But if you magnify it 100,000 times, you see things that look like ziggurats. So we've been trying to find ways in which the... To interact exactly and, and right. intersect. I would also add, I've done a lot of work with Lev. He's a guy that really leans forward in his area of scholarship and has done a lot of work. For example, taking pictures during the uprising of the Maidan in Kiev, Ukraine. I mean, he, he works across so many... Uh, ideologies, so many disciplines. Um, It's very exciting to see his work and how it's evolving as he pursues it here at the Graduate Center. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that I think he's a a good example of how we try to uh, create knowledge for the public good. A lot of, if not all of his work is available online. uh, The thing I always point to is he had a a project called, which he called Selfie City, which he looked at publicly available selfies in about a half dozen cities around the world. And then using facial analysis software, he then analyzed, well, which cities are happier, which cities are sadder. And and it was a very a it was very cute, but b it was very visceral. Is that you immediately understood what he was doing, and he really harnessed the power of big data to give us little snapshots of how cities respond and how that their responses matter as a function of seasonality or in current events that might be going and, on at the time. And also the differences in gender. I worked with him on that project, and during that project. Uh, it was the Academy Awards, and Ellen DeGeneres did a selfie mm-hmm. uh, when she was the host using a Samsung uh, camera phone, and it broke Twitter. I mean, Twitter crashed during the Oscars, and that that event intersected with his scholarship, and his scholarship ended up on the pages of the Wall Street Journal, which is pretty, pretty cool. 
Yeah, and, and we're really that's one of the things, you know, uh, two examples right there, Lev winding up in the Wall Street Journal and then through interactions with yourself and other members of the GC communications team, we're trying to get the word out that really world-class science happens at CUNY. I know in this very studio about a year ago, Ryan Uline, the founding yes. director of our nanoscience initiative at the ASRC, was uh, on Science Friday talking about how they came up with a really ingenious way of synthesizing melanin in the laboratory, which turned out to be a very tough chemical synthetic process. So we really are trying to get the word out that world-class science happens at CUNY and that you can come to CUNY and become a world-class scientist. One thing I, I, I mentioned this morning when I was talking to the Brazilian group that was visiting us, 11 Nobel Prize winners in the sciences have graduated from CUNY. Most of them, all of those from the undergraduates, so I'm looking forward to one day seeing a graduate of the Graduate Center walk across uh, the City Hall in Stockholm to receive the award from the King of Sweden. But those are kind of the, the large visions you, you hinted back to the strategic plan. We don't put something that big in the strategic plan, but it's always, in, always in our mind that our, our students can go on to excellent and productive careers. Sure, the aspiration. So you yourself, even if you are a dean with your administrative burdens, you are a neuroscientist in psychology. Your research is focused on understanding the building blocks of the brain's cortical circuitry, and specifically how sensory stimulation influences its development as an organ. What answers has your lab uncovered what do they mean for the field of brain science and for addressing neurological diseases? And that's a big that, that, order. That's a, that's big, a order. big order. So there's a little unpacking to do. So to, to what I mean by building blocks, the best analogy I always do is kids playing with uh, alphabet blocks. So they learn A, the ah sound, B is the B sound. And then as they develop, they grow bigger, they know they can, they can spell words, cat top, you know, bag, all the three-letter words, and it expands. And so when I first opened my lab, when I came to Queens College and the Graduate Center in 2002, we used studies to define what was the three-dimensional morphology of neurons, what were the basic building blocks, and that's what I mean by that. And then we asked the question is, how does environmental experience impact their structure and function. And we use it in a, in a mouse model, and any New Yorker listening to this have seen rodents in the in, in the parks, hopefully not in their apartments, certainly in the subway system. Subway, system. for and, sure. And if they, if they watch them carefully, they'll notice that they use their whiskers to interact with their environment. In fact, their whiskers are as sensitive as our fingertips in determining textures. And so we can manipulate their experience by, for instance, trimming their whiskers, which is totally painless to the animal, equivalent to you getting a haircut. There's no sensory receptors there. Or we could give put more toys or running wheels in their cages so they are in an enriched environment. And what we've shown is that when you deprive the animals of their normal sensory experience, the morphology changes, the physiology changes, and the behavior changes. They can't, for instance, discriminate as well between a rough and a smooth mm -hmm. texture. 
how is that related uh, to human health, which is you know the bigger question, and that's how we get funding from the National Institutes of Health, is that unfortunately this actually happened in a human population. One thing that uh, became apparent in the fall of the Soviet Union in uh, the mid-90s is that there were institutional orphanages yes. in countries like Bulgaria and Romania. Romania, yes. And it, it's, it's a tragic story. International adoption agencies rushed in and place these uh, children largely in affluent families in the United Kingdom. And the parents couldn't understand why their children were not developing, quote unquote, normally. And then there was more research as akin to the, the story of fetal alcohol syndrome, syndrome. Di- uh-huh. diagnosis here in the United States. Yes. They then realized that these infants were raised in cribs, in some cases to the age of four and five, and really had no sensory experience. And so that wow. resulted in deformations of their brain. We don't know if there was changes at the cellular level because we, we can't take those samples. But if you do an right. MRI, we know structurally they're different. If we measure their electrical activity, we know that's different. If we look at their neurochemical activity, we know that's different. And we know the behavior and IQ. So we know for sure that sensory deprivation is important. And, and you hear this, uh, young uh, new, new mothers are always told to stroke uh, their babies, their babies, and there yeah. are physiological reasons to that, and we think there's important feedback mechanisms. And so we're trying to then see if, for instance, enrichment following a period of sensory deprivation can ameliorate some of the effects. And, and it does appear to have an effect, but it turns out that the brain is much more mutable early on in development. So if you do the sensory deprivation from birth, the impacts are quite long lasting. If you do the sensory deprivation later in life, the impacts are much subtler to not at all, depending on what you're assaying. I so see. when we do deprivation followed by enrichment, we have an effect, but you have to allow the enrichment to last much longer because the rate at which- mitigate. Exactly, the rate at which the brain can reshape itself later in life is slowed down. And we're actually studying one of the things we think is putting the brakes on this rearrangement, and that's really where my lab is focusing right now, is that if we can remove these brakes, can we reopen what is called the critical period, is, is the neuroscience scientific term and therefore allow for recovery and not only would this be important in developmental disorders like we discussed but also in what they call uh, acquired disorders like for instance a stroke or some sort of trauma to the brain it's very hard for the neurons to regenerate and that's because there's inhibitors to the regeneration all around them so the idea is if we could help remove that that will reopen this critical period and allow them to recover better there's some evidence from other labs that suggests this may in fact be the case. So your research actually has a, a connection, if I'm looking at the news cycle right now, uh, and one of the great criticisms is the child separation policy down on the border, and children are not being touched in these uh, uh, ICE facilities uh, and they're actually the staff is being told not to touch the children. So there seems to be quite a bit of outrage uh, by pediatrics uh, association, you know, doctors, psychologists. There's a lot of outrage about this right now. Right. I mean, the lack of touch and the impact. I think it's 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 not entirely known. I I do think it's it's better. I think 
the bigger fear is is the stress that you mm-hmm. are uh, stressing out these children. I, I think there's no doubt about that, and that and that is then a, a, a setup for subsequent health effects. Uh, we've we've seen that in. Uh, communities that are marginalized, that are mm-hmm. constantly under stress. And stress can come from many different uh, functions. It could come from economic stress. It could come from food scarcity. It could come from uh, trauma, abusive stress. But it appears in many cases that ultimately it impacts the same cellular mechanisms. And then that sets up uh, a, chain. The, a, a chain of events. And, and, and more often than not, the outcome is quite poor. So your working lab is at Queens. Yeah, my my my, my lab laboratory at... Que- as Queens College, which is you know what I like to say part of the CUNYverse, uh, and uh, I, I must say this is a special Wednesday coming here for the podcast. Usually Wednesday is the one day that I spend the day in Queens working with my lab. Uh, I'm in touch with them all the time uh, via phone, text, Skype. It, it's really uh, it's all consuming. It, it's all consuming, and I really have a great respect for the people in my lab. Uh, I always felt I was very lucky to have a great mentors as an undergraduate and a graduate student, as they were always there. So, as you mentioned, I have a lot of administrative duties, and I'm mindful on the impact that has on my mentoring and the ability to help my students. But one of the things I'm very proud of is now we've had over 40 students from my lab since coming in 2002 that have gone on to graduate or professional school, so medical school, that's dental school. That's a great school. record. So that's something I'm, I'm really proud of. So we mentioned uh, earlier discussion about, you know, when the GC absorbed the Advanced Science Research Center, this incredible facility uptown with five research initiatives. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about the ASRC and and, uh, how you envision it elevating GC sciences overall? So it's the Advanced Science Research Center is really a state-of-the-art building that's really was implemented and designed to create interdisciplinary interactions between the five core areas within the building. Environmental science, nanoscience, structural biology, neuroscience, and photonics. Environmental science is quite obvious what that is. We talk about water scarcity, we talk about environmental interactions, pollution, neuroscience, the study of the brain, and really one of the focuses there is how does the environment impact uh, the brain. I discussed a little bit of that from my own research perspective, but they look at things, for instance, like epigenetics, the idea that your brain can infect the way in which your genes uh, produce different RNAs, which then produce different proteins, which then have different effects. Uh, Structural biology looks at the three-dimensional structures of proteins and based on that infers how these proteins might be working and has implications on not only the brain but also cancer. Photonics is the study of light and the light transmission and light can be used to manipulate neural activity, can be used to manipulate cellular activity, so that's a, a natural interaction. And eventually nanoscience, which is really its, foca- its focus is on bio-nano, the idea that you can develop 
uh, biological materials at, at the micro scale that could help, uh, if, for instance, in, in cancer treatment. In addition to those research efforts, but equally aligned, we have 17 core facilities. So these are facilities for the not only the researchers within the building, but with researchers throughout CUNY and throughout the metropolitan area where they can come in for a fee and, for instance, use New York City's largest clean room for the manufacturing of devices or materials at the, at the nanoscale, which is 10 to the minus 9, so 0 0.09 of those uh, and then a one to give you how small we're talking about. We have high level imaging if you want to be able to see those things, a magnetic resonance imaging MRI center, which will uh, be training some of our cognitive neuroscience master's students. So you begin to see the integration. And in a partnership, right, with the Brain Child. The Child Mind, brain, Child yeah. mind, Child mind, mind Institute. Institute. We yes. have a partnership with them. Uh, we have partnerships with a variety of companies that come and use our facilities. So I think the ASRC provides one, a, 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 a nexus and where collaborations can go across what we call vertical collaborations because each one of those initiatives is on a different floor, number one. Number two, we have several programs that promote uh, scientists from throughout the CUNYverse coming to the ASRC to use the facilities, interact with uh, the research uh, faculty there. And then third, it allows us to collaborate with academic partners like Columbia, NYU, Mount Sinai, New York Structural Biology Center, but also also allows us to interact with nonprofit groups. You mentioned the Child Mind Institute, but also uh, pri uh, public, excuse me, uh, private industry uh, that want to come in and use our facilities. So that's a pretty incredible facility. Um, Ryan actually indicated uh, when we were talking at one point, uh, he said There's, this is the only facility like it in the world. This is truly unique. It has a unique place in, in the research of, of really what you would call new forward-leaning scientific research. Yeah, I mean, a lot of universities have attempted to do what we're attempting to do is to create these interdisciplinary environments. But typically what they do is they hire someone into the physics department who is in a building over here. They hire someone into the neuroscience department, which might be at the medical school two miles away. Right. And so then you have the issue of geography, which is here at CUNY we're used to, number one. But number two, we've now hired all of them under one roof. So from my own experience and talking to many other scientists, you collaborate with the people you meet in and in the tea room, if we were in England, Ryan Uline coming from Scotland, sure. uh, or the water cooler here in America, or, or, or wherever it might be. And so these interactions, and we've actually created a forum, which we call Science Fridays, uh, kind of a, a playoff, Super Science Fridays that we do, so we don't rip off the NPR show that's uh, right. recorded here, right. where we have... Uh, essentially snacks each week is sponsored by a different initiative uh, and they come and talk about their science and possible ways they can interact or they want to get help on a question from the other scientists in the building. So I, I just have drawn sort of a symmetry here. I mean, ASRC is our uptown campus, but it's likewise here at the GC. It's one building 
and you see interdisciplinary work in ways that you just don't see on a classic spread out campus, uh, you know, like Syracuse or a place like that. So I think that's really unique to this uh, graduate doctoral research environment. Uh, I think it's very exciting. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree with that. I mean, interdisciplinarity is baked into the Graduate Center, and it's baked into the ASRC. I think that's one of the reasons why the, the central office made the decision to move the ASRC under the GC's umbrella. So I think that's great. Uh, I, I agree from the graduate student perspective to be able to be trained in this interdisciplinary environment using cutting-edge uh, tools will really put them a step ahead of their competition when they go on for postdoctoral positions or industry p- positions at the time of graduation. So last thing I wanted to bring up, which is a very exciting uh, recent uh, grant that was issued to the Graduate Center, the Claire Booth Luce Fellowship Grant of uh, $249,400 to supplement five graduate fellowships for women in mathematics and computer science programs. How did this come about and what was the, obviously, what was the intent behind this to, to advance women, clearly, but more to the point, how do you contextualize this in in the overall mission? Well, I, I put this in, in really uh, lockstep with one of the, the goals of the Graduate Center is the idea of diversifying the professorate and making it more inclusive. So there's a lot of discussion these days about increasing representation from underrepresented groups, and, and we've done all, we've, we've made some strides there. Our, our chemistry program actually won a, an award from the American Chemical Society for advancing diversity in the chemical sciences, and it's something that we're really uh, working on. But when you look at issues in, in science, especially in what uh, they call the quantitative fields, engineering, which we don't have, mathematics, physics, computer science, um, the number of females in those fields are, are relatively low, uh, less than 30%, which typically graduate programs are about 18 to 20%. And, 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 and frankly, that's what the Graduate Center is. And we saw this opportunity through the Claire Booth Loose Fellowship Program to perhaps get additional funds, which we were fortunately successful to get with the help of Helen Coe here in our development office. And we can use those funds to help recruit top quality female graduate students. But the other thing that we're putting in from our side is we're creating a mentoring environment. So we're identifying faculty members in computer science and mathematics, female faculty, that can be resources to not only the Claire Booth Loose Fellows, but to female graduate students throughout those programs and try to create spaces where they can talk about issues that might be pertinent to them, while myself, for example, as a male faculty member, it might not be something that I'm even aware about. And so to create uh, an environment where uh, they feel included, they feel welcome, I think will uh, hopefully allow us to recruit not only these loose fellows, but more female graduate students into our programs. That's terrific. So thanks for joining us today, uh, Dean Brumberg, and we'll have you back to give us an update. Uh, I look forward to that, and if you're listening uh, this season, I wish uh, Tanya, you, and all the listeners a very happy holidays and a healthy new year. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in to The Thought Project, and thanks to today's guest, Dean Joshua Brumberg of the Graduate Center, CUNY. 
The Thought Project is brought to you with production, engineering, and technical assistance by Sarah Fishman. I'm Tanya Domi. Tune in next week.